Well, welcome everybody to Bible study tonight. So glad you're here. We're continuing our study through the book of Acts. We're going verse by verse, chapter by chapter through this book. We're doing it because we want to relive it. And as I've said, I guess 23 times in this series, we're studying through it because we want to relive it. And the more I study it, the more I realize that we actually are reliving this incredible book. The good, the bad, and the ugly of this book. And when I say the ugly, I refer to the uh, persecution of the church and its leaders. And also the uh, various trials and temptations that we all face. They're not new to us. Uh, The followers of Jesus Christ have always been tested through trial. And we see in our text, even tonight, how Paul himself uh, relies on the Word of God and the truth of God's Word to get him through everything that he faces. So what we'll do is we'll read the summary paragraph on your handout, and then we'll go verse by verse through the text. So chapter 23 of the book of Acts describes a plot against the life of Paul. And this is a continuation of the story that started back in in chapter 22. So it describes the plot against the life of Paul, how it was laid, how it was discovered, and ultimately how it was defeated. Uh, We've been reading through the book of Psalms in our prayer time, and oftentimes David will lament that his enemies have laid a trap for him, that his enemies are against him. But he always goes back to the Word of God. He relies on the Word of God, the promise of God, to deliver him. And and here it's happening in Paul's life. His enemies laid a trap for him, but it was discovered and ultimately defeated. So the chapter starts with the description of how the council and the high priest, Ananias, treated Paul, trying their best to condemn him because they didn't like his teachings. Uh, Forty men vowed to set an ambush and kill Paul. Uh, But Paul's nephew overhears the plot and reports it to the commander. The commander orders a considerable detachment of Roman forces to get ready to go to Caesarea with all expediency. Uh, And expediency here refers to political advantage. And we talked last week about how the the governors and the commanders... uh, What's that word in the, uh, the... the tribune, they're all, you know, ruling on behalf of Caesar in the different colonies and the different cities that are being occupied by the empire. And so they want to make sure that Paul is not improperly handled, that he's not mistreated, that he's not falsely accused and unjustly punished for a crime that he did not face trial for. And so That's why the Roman detachment and the commander and the tribune, they want to get Paul to Rome because they know that that he, as a Roman citizen, has a right to appeal to Caesar himself. So they want to bring Paul to Caesarea, and uh, they want to protect him there. Paul appears before the Sanhedrin, which is the governing body of uh, the Jews, where he hears their accusations, and he presents his defense And the commander realizes that there is actually no charge against Paul that will stick. Then the chapter ends with him being transferred to Caesarea, where he will actually appear before a governor. 
and not just a tribune or a commander, but an actual governor of Rome. So let's read verse, uh, oh, there we go. Let's read verse uh, 1 to 3. Okay, looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. So remember, Paul was falsely accused. And so he is giving his defense here, and he says, Brothers, I've lived my life before God in all good conscience. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 12, and it's on the screen for you on the far right side. Paul in 2 Corinthians 1.12 says this, For our boast is in this, the testimony of our conscience, that we've behaved in the world with simplicity, godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so towards you. So Paul is um, not one to brag on himself and his accomplishments so much as he um, brags on the fact that he has lived with a good conscience before God. In fact, he told young Pastor Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.3, and these are some of the last words that Paul ever wrote, 2 Timothy 1.3, he says to his protege, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I, remember your, as I remember you constantly in my prayers day and night. Paul's often reminding himself and those who he's writing to and speaking to of his clear conscience. And then let's do one more, Hebrews 13.18, another parallel scripture. Uh, the Hebrew writer, who may well, may well have been Paul, but we're not sure, he or she says in chapter 13, verse 18, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. And so Paul appeals to his good conscience here at the beginning of his defense at the, um, at the council here. And so then in verse 2 it says, And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by to strike him on the mouth. So this um, appeal to Paul's good conscience did not sit well with the high priest. He didn't like the way it sounded, possibly because um, you know he realizes that he is falsely accusing Paul and that Paul... Um, you know, brings this up almost in a sarcastic, maybe facetious way, uh, because I think he is indirectly accusing the high priest of not having a clear conscience for falsely accusing me of something that I clearly did not do, which was to defile the temple by bringing a Gentile into it. And so he orders Paul to be struck on the mouth. Verse 3, then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you you whitewashed wall. So, big insult here. Doesn't seem like much to us to be called a whitewashed wall, but let's read a few parallel scriptures and see, let's let the Bible interpret the Bible and see what a whitewashed wall actually means. 
So here in chapter 3, verse A, let's go to the words of Jesus in Matthew 23. Jesus himself uses this similar insult when he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You're like a whitewashed tomb, which outwardly appears beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. And then here, uh, let's look up the word wall. What is Paul saying when he uses the word wall? We understand a whitewashed tomb. That makes sense. You know, it looks decent on the outside, but we know inside there's a dead body and there's decay and uncleanness. But why does he use the word wall? Well, we have to go back to Isaiah chapter 30 and verse 13 to get a hint. Let me make that a little smaller. That's going to be hard to read. One moment. Just going to... Bring the size of that down a tiny bit. There we go. Okay, there. Isaiah 30 and verse 13. It might be, might be tricky for you to see, but it's on the far right side of the screen there. Therefore, this iniquity shall be to you like a breach in a high wall bulging out and about to collapse, whose breaking comes suddenly and in an instant. So, of course, he's speaking to the high priest here who would be very well acquainted with the writings of the prophets. And so he uses the word wall like the prophet Isaiah did to say that your wall is being breached and it's bulging and it's about to collapse. So just picture a retaining wall that was poorly built, that as the pressure of the, the wall or the, the land behind it pushes against it, it bulges out and it can't retain the land anymore, and it, it's becoming useless and pointless. There's no point to that retaining wall when it stops retaining. Uh, and then let's look at uh, Ezekiel as well, Ezekiel's prophecy concerning a wall. This is a little longer, but we'll read through it. Ezekiel uh, 13, 10 to 14 says, precisely because they have misled my people. So this is the accusation that Paul is making against the high priest, that they're misleading the people saying, peace when there is no peace. And because when the people build a wall, these prophets smear it with whitewash. They say to those who smear it with whitewash that it shall fall. There will be a deluge of rain, and you, O great hailstones, will fall, and a stormy wind will break out. And when the wall falls, will it not be said to you, where is the coating with which you smeared it? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will make a stormy wind to break out in my wrath, and there shall be a deluge of rain in my anger and great hailstones of wrath to make a full end. And I will break down the wall that you have smeared with whitewash and bring it down to the ground so that its foundation will be laid bare. When it falls, you shall perish in the midst of it, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. So this is a scathing insult that Paul makes to the high priest here because he's saying that you are going to be brought down by God and it doesn't matter what whitewash you put on, on that wall, it is going to be brought down. God is going to bring you down and when he does, you will know that he is the Lord. Uh, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago when we read about Paul offering a sacrifice 
and making a, uh, doing a cleansing ritual when he went to Jerusalem to minister to the people there. And we talked about how this was a little bit of grace being shown by God in the in-between time so that the covenant, the new covenant could take hold uh, without fully doing away with the old. And you know what it's like when you've, when you've been raised a certain way or you, you were brought up to believe something or to think a certain way and then you come into the truth. Even though you know it's the truth, it's hard to unlearn what you've already known. And so God extended grace to that first generation of Jewish Christian, allowing them to practice their faith and the rituals of their old religion while still being believers in Jesus Christ. But God knew that that wasn't going to last for very long. If the, people, if the people of Israel in the Old Testament are any indication, they would have done well to mix Christianity and the Mosaic Law together and make a whole new religion, which they did many times in the Old Testament with the religions of the surrounding nations. We're going to talk a lot about that on Sunday morning, on Life Sunday, how they took idols and brought them into the temple, brought them into the Holy of Holies even, and set them up next to the Ark of the Covenant. And so God allowed them grace, but he was also going to bring down the priesthood and the temple and the sacrificial system. It was going to be done away with. In fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy in Matthew 24, when he says, see this temple, not one stone will be left upon another. All will be torn down. And of course, and I mentioned it in 70 AD, uh, Roman Emperor Domitian with his general uh, Titus went into Jerusalem, destroyed the city, tore down its walls, and completely destroyed the temple and scattered the priesthood. And there's never been a temple sacrifice in Jerusalem since. And won't be until the book of Revelation says, uh, until the new heaven and the new earth. But it won't be sacrifices for sin. It'll be sacrifices of praise and worship unto God. So I wanted to take some time there and just show you that sometimes we, we know that Paul is insulting these people by calling them a whitewashed wall, but what is he really saying? Well, the Bible interprets itself, and so here are these two parallel scriptures, and there are others, help us understand that Paul is talking to these high priests and this council that have set themselves up as the arbiters of truth and justice in, in Jerusalem. Uh, and he says to them, God, you think you can take me down? You can't take me down. But God is going to take you down. And when he does, you will know that he is God. In a similar way, God took Paul down, if you remember his Damascus Road experience, which he talked about even in the last chapter, where he was knocked off his high horse. And so... Um, Paul says to them, you're going to be knocked down too. Anyway, continuing on here in verse 3, you whitewashed wall, are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Well, what's he talking about there? Uh, he's referring to Deuteronomy chapter 25 and verse 1. It says, if there is a dispute between men, and they come into court, and the judge uh, and the judges decide between them, acquitting the innocent and condemning the guilty. And so he's talking here about how Paul believes himself to be innocent. 
and he needs to be acquitted. He's not guilty, and yet you ordered me to be struck. You condemned me before you've even heard all the evidence and before I've even given my defense. Verse 4, those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? So these high priests think they're above the law. They think they're above criticism. And so Paul, in his insult of them, calling them whitewashed walls, and then accusing them of acting unjustly and breaking the law of God, uh, as we read in Deuteronomy 25.1, the people pipe up and they say, you're reviling God's high priest. Now we know that at this time, this is post-Calvary, this is post-empty tomb, this is post-ascension, this is post-Pentecost. So God's high priest at this point is not Ananias, but it is Jesus Christ, who is our great high priest in the order of Melchizedek. He is the high priest forever, and he is our great high priest. And so this is... um, This is just complete fallacy. Would you revile God's high priest? Ananias was certainly not God's high priest, especially at this time. Uh, Let's look up at the word revile for a moment in the dictionary here, in the Greek dictionary. Uh, And you know what? I like doing this because this gives you a little bit of insight in how I even do my own Bible study and prepare for sermons and things like that. Uh, So let's uh, look up this word revile and see exactly what it means Yeah, here in the dictionary. So the word revile means to to reproach. And what is that little word? Oh, to vilify. Yeah, so to uh, the people say, like, are are you making the high priest out to be the criminal here? How dare you say that he's the villain in all this? In verse 5, Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, when Paul says this, I think there's a bit of tongue-in-cheek. I think there's a bit of sarcasm. Because based on what I had just said about Jesus at this point being the high priest, uh, Jesus being the fulfillment of all the priesthood, and so uh, there's po- two possible meanings, and I think both are true at the same time. At this time, there was a group of high priests that would serve the temple. You know, all throughout the Old Covenant, it was one high priest. But by this time, the priesthood had become so corrupted, they were on a cycle. And so what, they would take turns. And so Paul is saying, I didn't know he was serving as high priest at this point. Also, he's not the high priest because Jesus Christ is our great high priest. So Paul is, I believe, saying both of those things at the same time. Paul here is doing what Jesus told his disciples to do when he sent them out, to be wise as serpents but innocent as doves. So he's crafty here. He's, he's speaking in, in such a way that he is speaking truth to power without also um, without also incriminating himself in the process. Verse uh, 6 of chapter 23. Now when Paul perceived that one part of the, of the people that were there were Sadducees and the other were Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, 
I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. So what is he saying here? Well, a few things we know about Sadducees, and we're going to look them up. You might be able to see if you got really good vision. Down in the bottom right corner, uh, the Sadducees were a, a group of heretical Israelites. They followed after this, this uh, false teacher here named Sadokian. Uh, and his heresy was that he, he did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. So he denied the existence of, of Sheol, which is the place of the dead in the Old Covenant, the place that Jesus describes in the story of the rich man and Lazarus, where they both went to Sheol, or Sheol, the place of the dead, and on one side was paradise, and on the other side was a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth with a great gulf in between. And so it was always um, the belief of even Old Testament Israel that one day there would be a resurrection of the dead. Uh, that's why when Jesus is at the tomb of Lazarus, and he says to Lazarus' sister that he will rise again. And she says, yes, Master, I know that he will rise on that day, on the day of resurrection. And Jesus then says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And so that is the gospel. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him um, shall not perish but have everlasting life. And so Paul is saying, listen... I'm being accused here by Sadducees and Pharisees. I'm a Pharisee. I believe in the resurrection of the dead, and yet I'm on trial for preaching the resurrection of the dead, which was a belief that the Pharisees held. Now, they didn't believe that Jesus was the resurrection and the life, but they believed in the resurrection of the dead, unlike the, Pharisees, or the Sadducees rather that were present in the council. Verse 7, and when he said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit. So the Sadducees not only denied the resurrection, but they denied spiritual beings, which ultimately means they denied God because the Bible says that God is spirit. But the Pharisees acknowledge all of them. They acknowledge the resurrection. They acknowledge angels, spiritual beings, and spirit itself. What's amazing about this word angel and some of the books that I've been reading on the Old Testament, you know, we know that the word angel means messenger of God. We know that it's um, in reference to, um, you know, crea created beings in heaven that are created to worship God or carry out God's plans. We, we know about guardian angels and, and things of that nature. And the host of heaven, the army of heaven, consists of these angels as well. And yet, in the Old Testament, you often hear about the angel of the Lord. And uh, some of the things I've been learning, and we don't need to go deep into it, but the angel of the Lord, whenever the angel of the Lord is mentioned, it's believed that, uh, and there's good evidence for that, the angel of the Lord is Jesus himself. And that he is the pre-incarnate Christ. Not only was he the word of God spoken at creation, but uh, the angel of the Lord, say, that fought battles ahead of the Israelites when they went into the promised land. 
the angel of the Lord that was with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace are all uh, Christophanies or appearances of the pre-incarnate Christ in the Old Testament. And so it's interesting. The Pharisees believe in the resurrection. They believe in angels. And so they believe in the angel of the Lord because they're scholars and experts in the Old Testament. So they would have known the, the writings of the prophets and the, the Hebrew history. So they believe in angels. And they believe in spirit, which means they believe that there is existence beyond what we can see and that there's, there's reality that's even more real than what we can experience with our senses. So they believe all these things. The only piece missing is they don't believe that Jesus is all three of those things. And so that's why they're accusing Paul, of course. That's why he's on trial. Verse 9, Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong with this man. After the evidence was presented to these scribes, who were the people that would copy out the word of God onto scrolls, and they would do it on behalf of the Pharisees, so that every, every new Pharisee, every person that came up through rabbi school and became a Pharisee, had their own copy of these scrolls. So that's why the, the phrase scribes of the Pharisees, or that's what it refers to. They stand up because they know the word of God too. They're constantly writing it out, making copy of it. They stand up and say, based on what he just said, calling you guys whitewashed walls that God's going to bring you down, uh, acknowledging that there is resurrection, there is um, angels, and there is spirit, based on all that, like there's nothing wrong with this man. There's nothing wrong with what he has said. There's nothing wrong with what he has done. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, so I mean, fists were thrown. The tribune, the commander, so the tribune is the, the person that's there on behalf of the empire, the Roman empire, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them. So, Sometimes the Bible uses hyperbole, which is exaggeration to make a point. But very rarely, and whenever it uses exaggeration, you know because it tells you in advance that it's, you know, it's uh, going to be used. But we have said all throughout the book of Acts, we're, and we're taking it literally. So for example, when, when they say that all of Jerusalem you know, feared the apostles and the teaching of the apostles when Ananias and Sapphira dropped dead for lying to the Holy Spirit, that fear was over all Jerusalem. We believe that it was actually everyone. And so here, here we don't have hyperbole for, uh, to prove a point or exaggeration to prove a point. The violence, okay, was so great that the Roman tribune was actually afraid. Now, whether that would have happened or not, we don't know, but whatever was going on, he was actually afraid that Paul was going to be torn to pieces by them. And he commanded the soldiers to go down and take Paul away from among them by force. So he was obviously being held, pushed around, pushed down, trampled. I, I'm not exactly sure, but 
the soldiers had to go down and take Paul out of the crowd by force and bring him into the barracks. You see what religion does to people, though, doesn't it? These are all supposed to be religious, pious, holy people. But as soon as they're challenged with the truth, their only reaction is violence and hatred. Verse 11. It's allergy season, just so I'm kind of... I'm going slow here because I feel like I'm holding back a sneeze. (laughs) Verse 11, the following night, look at this, the Lord stood by Paul. So Jesus himself, you know, the, the same Lord that knocked Paul off of his high horse on the road to Damascus, now appears to Paul and says to him, take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify in Rome. Paul wasn't just giving his opinion. He wasn't giving his firmly held beliefs. Paul actually spoke facts to these people, but they refused to hear the truth. But Jesus tells Paul, not in a dream, but appeared to him, stood by him, and and encouraged him and said, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me, so you must also testify in Rome. Let's look up a few of those parallel scriptures in Acts chapter 23, 11. Uh, Let's go back to, it says in verse 18, or chapter 18 and verse 9, Jesus also says to Paul, and the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. So this is not the first time that the Lord showed up to Paul and encouraged him and told him to, uh, or, or told him not to be afraid. In just a couple, just a couple of chapters before, the Lord showed up to Paul and said, Go on speaking and do not be silent. And then in a few chapters, Paul is going to be, uh, this is the fulfillment of Jesus' words is going to happen here in verse 20, uh, sorry, chapter 27, verse 23. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the, um, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. So Paul, here in Acts 27, when he is, um, giving testimony in Rome refers back to this uh, encounter, this interaction he has with Jesus who told him, um, told him to, to speak and not be silent. And so this is not just true for Paul, of course. Paul's not the only believer in Jesus Christ that's had to have courage. I mean, Paul is a pretty high-profile believer in Jesus Christ, but each and every one of us have to live with courage. It takes courage to live the Christian life. Um, Even if what was going on in our world today was not going on, you still would need courage to live the Christian life. 
And so if you needed it then, you, you especially need it now. Let's look at what the word courage means here when Jesus says, uh, have courage. He says, be of good cheer, be comforted. We, we need to be comforted as a believer. And of course, Jesus is our Prince of Peace. God is the God of all comfort. God is the one who gives us joy. The joy of the Lord is our strength. And so in all of these things, Jesus says to have courage, to be of good cheer, be comforted. You testify to the facts. You spoke truth. You have nothing to be ashamed of. You did it in Jerusalem. Now you're going to do it in Rome. Verse 12 of chapter 23, And when it was day, the Jews made a plot, and they bound themselves by an oath. That's what I said. These guys are serious. They mean business. They weren't just like upset and then overreacted a little bit, and now they've cooled off. And, you know, maybe Paul's not such a bad guy after all. No. Overnight, they made a plot to kill Paul. And not only did they plot to kill him, they bound themselves by an oath. They said, like, we are going to do this. It's going to happen. And the oath is this, that they would not eat or drink until they had killed Paul. Well, that's a pretty big, or that's a pretty serious oath. They say, I will eat nothing and drink nothing until Paul is dead. Yeah. <laughs> or they broke their oath. Look how many there were. This wasn't just two or three guys. Verse 13 says, there were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. Forty people said, he has to die, and we're not going to rest, we're not going to eat, we're not going to drink until he's dead. They went to the chief priests and elders and they said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore you, the priests and elders, along with the council, give notice to the tribune. And the tribune is the guy that's there you know, governing and ruling on behalf of the Roman Empire, give notice to him to bring him down to you, to bring Paul down. Tell the tribune to get Paul out of prison and bring him here. And do it as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. So do it under false pretenses. Tell the tribune, like, we, need, we want to examine him further. We have, we have some further questioning. New evidence has come to light. And so we want to determine his case more exactly. Uh, this also goes back to that whole um, idea that a Roman citizen could not be falsely accused. A Roman citizen could not be punished for a crime for which they were not tried. And there was sufficient evidence found by a judge to, uh, to convict and so they're saying, okay, this is how you're going to trick him. This is how you're going to get the tribune to bring Paul out of prison. Tell him we want to examine him more. Tell him we want to figure this out. We want to get it right. And when he does, when he falls for it, we're ready to kill him before he comes near. Before he even, before he even gets to you guys, to the council, we're going to kill him. We're going to ambush him. Verse 16, now the son of Paul's sister, 
heard of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man, my nephew, to the tribune, the Roman, for he has something to tell him. Now, no, no regular Jewish person could get away with this. No Jewish person could call a centurion to come over and give that centurion a command. But Paul, remembers a Roman citizen. Roman citizen born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but raised in Jerusalem. Born to Jewish parents, fully Jewish. Raised in Jerusalem, but by birth, a Roman citizen. So he, he has the authority here to call over one of the centurions and give him a command to bring his nephew before the tribune because he has something to tell him. Verse 18, so he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. Excuse me. Verse 19, the tribune took him by the hand, so he must not have been very old, took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying to ambush him and have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat or drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune, the Roman, dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Verse 23. When he called two of the centurions, or sorry, then he called two of the centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers. They're going to be outnumbered five to one. Get ready 200 soldiers. They've got 40 guys. Let's do 200. And get 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night and also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. What's amazing to me, and I often say this, there's nothing in the Bible that's not supposed to be there. Now, there's some stuff that I wish was in the Bible, just like I wish, you know, there was some stuff that wasn't in there. But this book of Acts is a history book. In fact, Luke, the author, says in the very first verse or two that he wanted to write an orderly account of what took place during the years of the, uh, of the apostles, just like he did uh, write an orderly account of the life of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. So here's the letter that, that the Roman tribune wrote to the governor Felix on behalf of Paul. Claudius Lysias, so that's the name of the Tribune. To His Excellency, the Governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews 
and was about to be killed by them, when I came upon them with soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen, and desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. And I mentioned this before. This was common practice in the empire. Uh, the Roman Empire was a colonial empire, meaning that they would go to different places in the world and take over the, the cities and set up you know, rulers and governors and tribunes and things like that in those places, and they would force those places to become Roman. They would be colonized. And so after a few years, uh, whether voluntarily or by force, those, those places, those occupied places, those countries and those cities would adopt the, the, the rule of Rome and ultimately join the Caesar cult, the official religion of Rome at that time. And if you remember the creed of the Caesar cult was Caesar is Lord, which was a direct contradiction to um, Christianity, which says that Jesus and Jesus alone is Lord, which is why there was so much persecution in the early church. So uh, just wanted to point that out, that this Roman tribune, Claudius, I think his name was, right? Yeah. Claudius, he said, I brought them down to their council, down to the Sanhedrin, their governing body. There were some Pharisees, Sadducees, you know, we already read that. I wanted to find out what they were accusing him of. Similar thing happened to Jesus when he was brought before Pontius Pilate. They, they had a, a council, a Sanhedrin the night before. Remember, under the cover of darkness, they wanted to bring this accusation of blasphemy. But they couldn't execute Jesus for that crime because Jerusalem was occupied by Rome at that time. And so they had to submit to Roman authority. That's why they brought him before Pontius Pilate and said, uh, here, here, here's Jesus. He's claiming to be God. He's claiming to be king, king of the Jews. And Pilate says to them yeah, at some point, will you have me crucify your king? And what do they say? We have no king but Caesar. In effect, they, they recite the creed of the Caesar cult, which is Caesar is Lord. The high priest says, we have no king but Caesar. Virtually the same thing. Which goes back to that whole reason why Paul called them whitewashed walls to begin with. That God was going to bring them down. They, they were not God's high priests. Verse 29. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law but charged with nothing deserving of death or imprisonment, which is the same thing that happened to Jesus. Pilate found no guilt in him. Pilate, trying to wash his hands of him, sent him over to Herod, thinking maybe Herod would find something to accuse him of, but Herod didn't either. Verse 30, and that's why I believe this, this letter is included. Because it shows that Paul endured something very similar to what Jesus endured, as did all of the apostles, and as have many, many Christians, just regular, ordinary people who follow the Lord, 
have experienced throughout the years. Being unjustly accused by another religion or, you know, some, some uh, radicalized group. And so uh, here the tribune says to Felix, the governor, I didn't find anything deserving of death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there was a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So this is a really, you know, it's a nice thing that Claudius the tribune did, but he was actually doing what Pilate did uh, about 30 or 40 years before, which is he wanted to pass the buck. He wanted, he wanted Paul to go higher up the chain of command. Let somebody else deal with this. In verse 31, so the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And the next day they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. And when they came to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. And you know, all of these details, I think, are included too, to say that when God has ordained something and, and uh, I don't want to say predicted because God doesn't predict. He foreknows. But when he, when he speaks into a situation, like he told Paul, you're not going to just speak in Jerusalem, but you're actually going to speak in Rome as well. That God, when he makes this plan, he actually carries it out to its full fulfillment. And so that's what I think here. And that's why I think Luke keeps recording all the details and he kind of repeats it over. Like we assume that if the, the, um, the tribune sent these soldiers and horsemen and things, that they did it. But Luke makes sure to repeat that they actually did do it. And so it's on record. There's a historical record that these things actually took place, that God fulfilled his purpose, his purpose for Paul. Upon reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And Paul said that he was from the province of Cilicia, uh, the city of Tarsus, and he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. So the, uh, the, the accusers do show up. Five days later, we're going to pick up there next time in chapter 24 in verse 1. What is true of Paul in this situation that he was being accused and he had some reprieve of accusation. He was carried away. He had five days of peace without any accusation, but the accusers showed up again. And isn't that true even of our own life and our own struggles? We have an accuser of the brethren, Satan, who's constantly accusing us before God, pointing out why we should be condemned, why we should be guilty, why God should forget about us. But not only do we have an accuser who accuses us, we have an advocate, the man Christ Jesus. And whenever he hears an accusation leveled against us by Satan, he says maybe something to the effect of, they're washed in the blood, they're my children, they are the righteousness of God in me. They are forgiven once for all. I died to redeem them. And all whom the Father has given me, 
I won't lose even one of them. There's nothing you could say to change my mind about them. I'm glad we have an advocate. Sometimes the accusations, it gets tiring. It weighs on you. It's heavy. It's not easy. That's why we need courage. We need courage. We need to be of good cheer. We need to be comforted. And the Word of God certainly comforts us. But we also have to be reminded that not only do we have an accuser, but we have an advocate. And he's never going to be convinced otherwise. 